You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. My five-year-old daughter's most prized possession on the planet is bunny, bunny, bunny. Some assembly required. And she loves bunny, and yet she loses him approximately 25 times a day. And there is nothing like the urgency of a five-year-old who has lost her source of comfort and the possession that she loves the most. We have gone on full-on family rescue missions to try to find Bunny. We found Bunny buried in our sandbox outside. We found Bunny on the side of the road. We found Bunny sitting in trees. For loving this thing so much, she certainly seems to lose him all the time. In fact, when I asked her if I could share Bunny with our church, and this guy's made an appearance before, she said, yeah, but don't tell people how much I lose him. And I said, but that's kind of like my point. She goes, okay, fine, you can tell people how much I lose him. So she loses Bunny all the time, and we have searched for him. And when Bunny is lost, nothing else matters other than finding Bunny. And I'd say for me, when I watch my daughter, one of the most convicting things on the planet for me is my daughter has more urgency for her lost Bunny than I have for my lost neighbors. My daughter has more urgency to find her lost bunny than many of us have for those in our lives who are far from God, who are lost. Why? Because for Rowan, finding bunny is personal. Finding bunny is deeply personal for her. When he's lost, when he can't be found, she takes it personally. She takes it on herself to find him, and she will do whatever it takes to flip the house upside down to find her lost bunny. You see, something changes when it becomes personal. Something changes when it becomes personal. And lost is the term that Jesus uses to describe people he loves who are far from God. And what I want you to hear this morning is that like my five-year-old in desperate pursuit of her lost bunny, lost people are never not personal for God. Lost people, people who are far from him, are never not personal for him. In fact, when Jesus talked, and he talked about lost people all the time, in fact, his entire ministry can be summed up in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. When Jesus engaged and talked about and saw lost people, his response was one of deep emotion. You see him looking out over Jerusalem and weeping over the lostness in the city. You see him looking out at crowds, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, people who are lost. And the text says, in the deepest parts of him, he is moved with compassion. When he wanted to illustrate in the form of a story how deeply personal lost people are for God, to God, he, he used the illustration of a shepherd with a hundred sheep, loses one and leaves the 99 and goes in desperate pursuit of that one sheep. He uses the 
the metaphor of a woman who had 10 coins, and when she loses one of her coins, what does she do? Like looking for bunny, she flips her house upside down until she finds that lost coin. And then he uses the metaphor of a father who has two sons and one runs away. And he says that father has a deep, deep longing for his lost son to come home. Lost people are never not personal for God. The question for us as a church this morning is, are lost people personal to you? Are lost people personal to me? You see, there's a type of prayer that actually has the power to give birth to new life, that has the power to bring lost kids home, that has the power to bring new life where there is death and drought and despair. And, and, and all I want to do this morning is we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament, and I just want to focus on these three words from the Lord's Prayer before we head into the Old Testament. And the three words are this, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, three simple words. And how we're going to illustrate this and look at this today is we're going to look at the life of a guy named Elijah. You you see, because one of the kinds of prayer that we are called to pray is for God's purposes to be accomplished in the lives of other people, for his kingdom to come in other people's lives, for his rule and his reign to be established in the lives of the people around us. There is a word for this kind of prayer. It is called contending prayer. It's the type of prayer that wrestles and labors and agonizes. It is the type of prayer that Jesus prayed often for those who are far from God. And today, we're going to look at the story of Elijah as an illustration for how we are invited to pray this kind of prayer for our community, for the people in our lives, and how deeply personal God takes lost people. So, we're going to look at this guy named Elijah. And I love how the New Testament describes Elijah. It's just such a painfully simple picture of who Elijah was. James 5, 17 and 18 says this about Elijah. He was just a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was just an ordinary guy. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, three and a half years, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah has been praying this weekend over Wayland, Michigan. I, I know that, because there's some rain here. But that's been my prayer for today, is that God would let it rain in our community. That God would open the floodgates of heaven. That God would pour out his spirit and pour out his rain on our community. He's done that physically here this morning. My prayer is that he would do that spiritually in our community. So I want to just give you a little bit of background here on Elijah. Elijah lived about 900 years before Jesus. And in this story, in this moment that we're going to be looking at here this morning, Israel, God's people, are far from him. They are lost. They are being led by a guy named Ahab and a queen named Jezebel who have utterly turned Israel's hearts away from God towards a God named Baal. And Baal is the god of fertility, of life. And, and, and where we pick up in the story here, there has been a drought for years and years and years on Israel, which there's some irony in this because God, Baal, the god of fertility, somehow can't muster up rain for the people that are worshiping him. 
right? So there's this rich irony here in the story that there's no rain that has fallen for years, and yet it's the people who have turned from Yahweh, the one true God, to Baal, the supposed God of fertility, and as soon as they do that, the rain stops coming. The drought happens. Now, drought for ancient Israel is not like drought today, where basically all it means is Kim Kardashian can't water her third vacation home's lawn out in California. No, drought for Israel means absolute despair. It means death. It means people are starving because crops can't grow. They don't have food to eat. It is utter hopelessness and drought and despair. And so where we pick up in the story here in 1 Kings, Israel is thirsty. They are drought-stricken. They are longing for water, longing for new life. Have you ever been that thirsty before? Where your entire mouth is just parched and all you want is a drop of water on your tongue. This is the picture that is being painted here. God's kids are lost. They are far from him. And have turned their hearts away. You better believe it is personal to God. And what Elijah says, we're not quite there yet, Sarah. What Elijah, we'll get there in just a second. What Elijah says is he says, you know what? We're going to have a showdown. We're going to have a showdown between the prophets of Baal. There are 450 of them. And the, the one prophet, Elijah of Yahweh. And we're going to build two altars. And we're going to set bowls on them. And we're going to ask the one true God to send fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And so he sets up this altar and he goes to Israel and he says, Israel, how long will you waver between two different opinions? You have your feet in two different worlds. Either Yahweh is God or Baal is God, but pick one. Stop wavering. And so they set up these altars. And of course, there's all this pomp and circumstance around the prophet, prophets of Baal who set up this grand altar to him, 450 of them. And they scream and they cut themselves and they do all of this fanfare and all of this pomp and circumstance for Baal to send fire to consume the bull. And spoiler alert, he does not do it. And then Elijah comes, where we pick up the story. And he, act oh, there goes Bunny's foot. And he actually pours water on his altar. Not just to prove how powerful God is, but to show how deeply valuable this sacrifice is. In a land with no water, he pours water on his altar, and then he does this in 1 Kings 18, 36. And at that time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. And I love this next part. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And the stones and the dust. And licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is a powerful story. It's powerful because God's people are lost. He takes it deeply personally. And it's Elijah's prayer 
that leads to the fire of God falling on his people, where all of Israel bears witness to a fresh move of God, to see his fire fall on his people. And the text says that their faith is reignited. They fall on their faces and they declare, Yahweh alone is God. But there's still a problem. There's still drought all around. The fire of God has fallen on his people, has reignited the spiritual passion of his people, but people are still dying. There is still drought in the land. There is no rain that has yet come. And that's what I'm reminded as I, as I read this text, that, that we could have revival break out in the church. God's fire could fall in this room. And it has in different ways over the last several months. But if it stays in this room and we are blinded to the drought that lives all around us in this community, spiritually thirsty people literally dying for a drink of water that only Jesus can provide, we have utterly missed the point. We are not after just God's fire falling in a room and then going and living our lives as if nothing has changed. God doesn't dream of the fire falling on his church. He dreams of communities and families and cities being reborn with new life. In this moment, I'm reminded that if you come and your fire for Jesus is reignited every single Sunday and you're refilled spiritually, but there is still drought in this community, our work is not done. God doesn't dream of a church with great programs or inspiring messages or even a thousand baptisms or awesome, you know, worship if it just stays in this room. It's not bad, but he dreams of communities being reborn, rain falling on those experiencing spiritual drought. My question for you here this morning, church, is do you see the drought around you? You see the drought around you. See, I just wonder, do we have desperation? Like this, this palpable thirst for people around us to be filled and to experience the rain only God can send. Are we desperate for the spiritual drought we see in the lives of people around us? Because what God dreams of is his church taking lostness so incredibly personally that when we see lost neighbors, lost kids, lost spouses, lost coworkers, that we are moved with compassion like Jesus to the point where we contend in prayer, we agonize, we labor, we wrestle, we cry out fervently, God, let it rain in these people's lives. God, give them just a taste of who you are. God, fill those who are thirsty with your Holy Spirit's power. You know, I was, um, I was talking to my mom yesterday on the phone, and we were just talking about my grandma and grandpa, who I've shared before, my grandpa is one of the spiritual heroes in my life. I just, whew, I, like, I can't even think about him without getting emotional. And I know that, you know, their lives are, um, you know, they're not going to be with us for, you know, that much longer. And both of their health is deteriorating. And my mom was just talking to my grandpa about just some of the lost people in her life and just the, the way that it grieves her. And she asked my grandpa, she said, 
Dad, how long have you been praying for your sister who has lost, Carol? And he said, over 50 years, five decades, he's just been praying for her, praying for his sister, Carol, praying that she would come to know and love Jesus. My mom said, how could you pray for someone for 50 years and not lose hope and not grow weary? And in that moment, my grandpa got the biggest smile on his face. And he said, because I know God will do it. I know he will. You know why? Because my grandpa's seen God do it before. His mom trusted in Jesus on her deathbed right before she passed. He's seen God do it once. My grandpa is such an inspiration to me of faith who can pray for the same name and the same person for five decades, 50 years. And when you ask him about it, his face lights up because he believes with everything in him that God will do it again. My grandpa inspires me because I see someone who knows how to take lost people personally to the point where he will wrestle and he will contend and he will agonize and he will fervently bring his sister before the Lord in prayer every single day. Do you see the spiritual drought of those around you? Because drought leads to a desperation for new life to be born. There's a word for someone here this morning. Spiritual drought and the people you love leads to desperate mothers in our church weeping over their kids who are far from God. And I've prayed with some of you over that. Your faces and your names and your kids' names have been in my mind as I've been praying for this message because it's personal for you. It's not just an abstract idea out there. It's personal. Drought leads to desperation, desperate spouses in this church contending for their lost wives or husbands. It hits differently because it's personal. Desperate people moved to wrestle with God in prayer for the people in their lives, for their neighbors and friends and coworkers, with the same ferocity that a five-year-old pursues her lost bunny. That's the kind of prayer that we're after here this morning. See, God doesn't just dream of his church set on fire. He dreams of Wayland, this community, the surrounding areas, reborn with new life. He dreams of rain falling. Elijah was just as human as we are, just an ordinary guy, and yet he prayed that it would rain, and God sent rain. There's a famous duo named Penn and Teller, uh, mag magicians for many years, super famous. And uh, Teller's the one who won't speak, and Penn's the one who won't shut up, right? And some of you know, you know you've watched them before. And Penn, um, Penn Gillette is his name, has this really famous kind of thing where he's talking about Christians, and he's talking about Christians' attitudes towards lost people. And Penn Gillette says this about Christians and their, our loss, our attitude. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and then not tell them about that? I want to just read that again. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and then kind of be indifferent about it to them? Oh, and by the way, Penn Jillette is a hardcore atheist. He's not a Christian, not even close a fierce critic of God and Christians, and yet I believe he's onto something here. How much do we have to hate somebody and believe to, to believe that heaven and hell are possible forever and ever and ever and not move heaven and earth 
to tell them about that, to not be bothered to pray for them, to not be bothered to contend for them. Church, when was the last time you were so grieved over someone who was far from God, and I don't just mean casually indifferent, or somewhat concerned, I mean grieved over spiritual drought. The posture Elijah takes next in this story is one that every single one of us can learn from. And I love how visceral this is. Reading on the next couple verses here in verse 41 and 42, 1 Kings 18, this is what says, So God has sent his fire, and Elijah said to the king, Ahab, go up, eat and drink. I love this. For there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the, mount, the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. So Elijah sends the king to prepare for rain because God is getting ready to send new rain to open the floodgates on his people to birth new life in them. And what does Elijah do while he sends the king to prepare for rain? Elijah climbs up the mountain, and the text literally says that he got on his knees and he put his face between his legs. The image that the author is painting here of Elijah is one of a mother in labor getting ready to, to bring forth new life, to, to bring forth birth. This is, this is the posture of contending prayer. It's this agonizing and this contending and this wrestling with God over lost people. I just... I, I'll picture the words of Elijah here in this moment on top of this mountain where he just says, God, let it rain. Let it rain on your city, Lord. Open the floodgates of heaven. Let your spirit pour out. And he's just agonizing and he's fervently praying and he's wrestling with God. He's saying, God, bring new life to your people. God, pour out your spirit on them. God, let it rain on your community. God, let it rain on the city. God, open the floodgates. Do not withhold your spirit. There is this powerful picture of prayer, a prayer that brings forth new life. This gives us a glimpse into how personally God takes lost people. He will light the church on fire for the, the sake of rain to fall on the city, the community, the neighborhood. Do you know what it looks like when we as a community, when we as a church begin to take this seriously? It looks like this. Zero lost people. Zero lost people, church. This is everything that we are after. Everything. To see the community, the city reborn. Lost people are never not personal to God. See, church, it's one thing to generically see Jesus pray, your kingdom come. Right? That's a nice idea. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. It's an entirely different thing when we pray it like this. Your kingdom come in blanks life. Do you have a name? You have a name that when you think about that person's face and that person's name in that line, your kingdom come and blanks life. That you're moved. That you're grieved. That you're desperate. 
that you, with everything in you, are longing for that lost son, that lost daughter to come home. Your kingdom come in blanks life. About a decade ago, my wife and I were attending a church called Frontline. Many of you have heard of it. It's one of our sister churches up on the north side of Grand Rapids. And this idea got introduced to us for the first time, this idea of one life. And they began just asking this simple question of our church over and over again. We talked about it all the time. Who is the one person in your life who is close to you yet is far from God? Who is it for you? Who is your one life? Who is the one? Who is the person? Who is the one that you would leave the 99 for in desperate pursuit to see them brought home to safety in Jesus' arms? Who is that one? And I just remember hearing that week in and week out. And God, for both my wife and I, kept laying the same names on our heart every single time that was brought up. And it was the name of her aunt, her uncle, and her two cousins. Just every time we heard that, their names came to our mind, partly because we were close to them. We would go to Northview football games together all the time, play games at their house on you know, Friday nights. And the other part of it was because they lived right outside Frontline's door, literally a block or two away. And so every single time, their names would fall on our hearts. You're called to pray for them. And not to make it weird, not to make it a project or shove something down someone's throat, nothing like that, but just every single time to bring them before God in prayer. And we, we did. We prayed for their family for years and years and years. For over a decade, we've, we've prayed for their family, committed to praying for them, praying that God would bring them home, that God would do a new thing in their lives. God, let it rain in the lives of Sam's aunt and uncle and cousins. God, birth new life in them and their family. God, let it rain. God, let your kingdom come in their life. For over a decade, we have prayed this prayer for them. And you cannot make this up. Three weeks ago, Sam's cousin was in the baptism tank. And he got baptized. And his brother was here in service and was so moved that he is getting baptized at our worship night in just a couple weeks from now. I share that to say, there are people in your life and there are people in my life who you have prayed for for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Don't stop contending for them. Don't give up. Because their salvation doesn't ultimate, it's not ultimately your responsibility to save them. It is your responsibility to pray for them and to not stop praying for them. I would love if every single week when our prayer team is up there, that there would be people in our church who bring the same name over and over and over again. And I will tell you, our prayer team will not get sick of praying for the same name over and over and over again. I know there's a name coming to some of our minds. And, and here's the thing, was, was it our prayers that brought Sam's cousin over the line of faith? I don't know. I don't pretend to know exactly how prayer works. What I do know is God hears our prayers. And what I do know is that Elijah was just an ordinary guy like you and me who prayed that God would send rain and God sent rain. And what I can tell you is that my heart, when we got to baptize her cousin was filled with overflowing with joy, not just because he's family, 
but because I celebrated that differently because of the agony and prayer that we had spent over their family. You celebrate it differently. It becomes personal when you contend in prayer for people because lost people, guys, are never not personal for God. Never. He's not indifferent towards people who are lost. The question for us is, are lost people personal to us? (laughs) And if it takes a five-year-old's bunny to show us that, are lost people personal to us? Who is it for you? Who is the name that God brings to your mind that you have prayed for for years in some cases? And God is calling you, even for some of us here this morning, as an act of encouragement to say, keep praying. Don't stop bringing that person's name before the Father. Pray that God would send his rain, that his spirit would fall, that he would do a fresh thing in their lives. Pray for this, this community. Pray for your neighbor who is far from God. Pray for your coworker. Pray for your friends. I want to share something with you just as we close here uh, that God has really been laying on my heart very consistently. And it, if you're new here at New Life or maybe just checking things out, I don't like share this type of stuff very often. And I know sometimes pastors will say, I got a word from the Lord. And it's, you know, weird sounding. Um, that's not my intention. So I want to share something with you cautiously that I believe God is speaking over this community. And it's just been reinforced multiple times. He's been really speaking this to me since January. I thought this was the perfect week to, to share. I've already shared it with our staff over the last couple months and our lead team, our advisory team. Other people in our church have come to me and actually said the same exact thing. So to me, that's just confirmation that God is speaking this to a couple different people right now. But I don't believe God has yet opened the floodgates in this community. We've seen glimpses If it's like a dam holding back water, what I see happening in our church right now is little cracks where water is starting to flow through. Little cracks here and there of God's water beginning to fall. I believe we've seen cracks, but I believe the floodgates are going to open one day. In the next year, I believe the floodgates are going to open. We baptized 40 people in the last month. Those are cracks in the dam. Those are not yet floodgates open. We saw 30 people make a decision for Jesus at Easter. Cracks in the dam. Not yet floodgates open. We've seen healings and restoration. Cracks in the dam. Not yet floodgates open. You know why I believe floodgates are coming to this city to be reborn because I see the enemy attacking really, really hard right now. I've seen the enemy attack me and our family. I've seen the enemy attack marriages in our church. I've seen the enemy attack. Make no mistake about it. He is contending for this community. The enemy of your soul is contending for your spouse and your neighbors and your friends. Question is, are you? Are we? Are we willing to contend? Are we willing to wrestle? Are we willing to agonize? I love the picture that Revelation gives of of what this looks like come to life and come to fruition. Revelation 22, 
17 says this, the spirit and the bride, the bride is just a way of saying the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You understand this, that the Holy Spirit extends the invitation for a thirsty world through who? Through the church. The Spirit and the bride say, come, all who are thirsty, come and drink without cost, without price. God opens the floodgates in response to his people's prayers. Not according to our timeline. Not according to exactly how we think it's going to look. But he responds to his people's prayers. floodgates of renewed life in Wayland, Michigan are about ready to open. I believe with everything in me, like my grandpa who's been praying for his sister for 50 years, that God will do it. He is faithful. But we have to begin by taking the lost people in our lives so deeply personally that we are willing to contend every single day to see them reached. We have to cry out to God, let it rain on our family. Let it rain on our schools. Let it rain on our city. Let it rain on our neighborhoods. God, let it rain. God, open the floodgates. God, bring forth new life. God, birth what only you can. God, allow this city to be reborn. And so here's what I want to do as we, as we close and we head into a time of worship. I'm going to get in the prayer posture of Elijah as we close. And I'm just going to spend a few moments praying for our city and for our community. And if you want to get in the same prayer posture, just on your knees, face to the ground, the invitation's open. We can look like fools together. But I want to just invite you, if God is laying a name on your heart right now, and if you're physically able to get in that posture And pray alongside me silently in your heart and just bring that name before the Father with everything that you have in you. So let's pray together, church. God, awaken the city. God, revive us. God, where there is drought and death and despair, Lord, pour out your rains of new life. God, we come before you with names and faces, kids who who you love so deeply. And God, we just ask you in boldness today to let it rain on their lives to let it rain on marriages in this community, to let it rain on workplaces, to let it rain in neighborhoods. God, we are thirsty. We are desperate. God, allow us to not be filled so full with our own privilege that we don't see the drought around us. God, we long for a fresh move of your spirit. God, we long for your rain to fall on Wayland, Michigan. 
God, we long for lost sons and daughters to come home. God, we long for lost spouses to come home. God, we pray for coworkers. We pray for neighbors. We pray for friends. We pray for family members, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, God. We bring them before you and we ask you, let your rain fall in their lives. God, we look at our school system and we see lostness there. God, let it rain on Wayland schools. God, let it rain on Hopkins. God, let it rain in Allegan. God, wherever we live, wherever we're from, God, let it rain. Pour out your spirit afresh. Draw people to yourself. God, do what only you can do. God, this isn't about us. This isn't about building our name or our church. God, do it how you will. Do it according to your way and your method and your timeline. But God, we ask that you will do it. God, save people who are hopeless. God, restore things that are broken. God, let it rain. And let new life come as a result of your presence falling in a fresh way. God, with a smile on our face, we say we believe you will do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.